Well, good morning again, everyone. It is my pleasure to be here with you this morning. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter. Um, so church, for the last few months, since January, we've been working our way through the book of John. Uh, but this summer, we're going to take a break, and we're going to walk through 2 Peter. I had a pastor friend that asked me, why, why take a break from John? And I said, because John is long. <laughs> True story. Um, but I, I do have to warn you this morning, I changed my preaching calendar about what I was going to preach on this morning about five different times. And uh, even as recently as this week, I was still figuring out precisely what we were going to be in. So the fact that you are, this is true every Sunday, but it's especially true this Sunday, the fact that you are sitting in that chair listening to this sermon from this passage is God's providence in your life and you take that up with him, okay? It's true every Sunday, but especially this Sunday, uh, I feel required to say that. Second um, Peter is a, is a book that is written, it's maybe Peter's last will and testament. We'll see that this morning. And so what we're going to see this morning is, um, is what Peter, um, empowered by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit, um, what Peter felt like he needed to say before he left this earth, before he took off his bodily tent, as this passage says. And, you know, it, I, I think that so many of us have benefited so much from Peter's ministry throughout the years that we, you know, we see his influence in the, the four Gospels and really his humility. We see his instruction in First Peter. And therefore, if you've ever been benefited by, by any of the words of Peter, I would pray that this this summer would um, you, you would listen extra diligently to what God has for us in His Word. So, if you guys don't mind looking with me, I'm going to read one more time, Second Peter chapter one, and we're going to go down through verse fifteen. Simeon or Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort 
so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Father in heaven, one more time, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word, the singing of your word, the praying of your word, and also the preaching of your word. Father, you say that your word does not go out void. And I pray for in the hearts and minds of this people that it would not go out void, but that it would accomplish the work which you intend it to accomplish. Pray for, for those of us who need to be struck down. Maybe this passage would humble us. But for those of us who need to be encouraged, need to be built up, that this passage would be a balm to our souls and that it would be healing for us. So we pray these things in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. How can I know I am saved? How can I know I am saved? She was sitting in my office in tears. This, this young woman had, had uh, grown up in the church and had walked away and walked away into some very dark things. She had come back to the Lord in a miraculous conversion in which she was she could, could not believe that she had had the, the chance to come back to the Lord, but, but it wasn't long before doubts started to creep in, and she wondered, would God really save me? Could God really save me? How can I know I'm saved? How can I have assurance? How can I trust that God really would save me? Maybe you're here this morning and maybe you are resting on your laurels. You grew up in the Christian faith and you have lived your whole life assuming that you're a Christian even though your, your life would look no different than if you weren't. You should ask that same question. How can I know I'm saved? Maybe you're here this morning and you are racked with doubt. And you feel that your soul is crumbling and withering and decaying. And you feel that you're being eroded by the winds of all that's going on in your life. And you need encouragement this morning. And you too should ask, how can I know I'm saved? This passage tells us in verse 10 that to be all the more diligent to confirm our calling and election. In other words, to have assurance, and I agree with the Westminster Confession of Faith and the London Baptist Confession of 1689 that this passage is about assurance. This passage speaks to this issue. But in order to to get there, in order to understand how it does that, we need to talk about uh, three things before we talk about it. So we're going to have four things that we're going to talk about total this morning other than application. So four, four questions. One, who is Jesus? Two, what is salvation? Three, how does sanctification work, or how do I grow as a Christian, much like what we talked about last week? And number four, how can I know I'm saved, or how does assurance work, or how can I be assured of my salvation? Number one, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus in this passage? Well, at the risk of stating the obvious in this passage, he is God. He's God. We see that repeatedly. So we see in verse 1, he says, "By the, if you want to know what Peter thinks about Jesus, look no farther than verse 1. He's not a subtle person. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He applies that directly to, to Jesus. In verse 3, when we see that through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, uh, that is actually a quotation of the, of the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. 
in a tr- translation of Isaiah 42, verses 8 through 12, which says this, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise, or and sometimes said excellence, so you can see their praise and excellence, glory and excellence, uh, nor my excellence to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Behold, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills them, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voices the villages of Kedar that the villages that Kedar inhabits let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy let them shout from the top of the mountains let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise or his excellence in the coastlands and Peter believes this this declaration of the one true God that there is no other that he believes that that includes Jesus that the person of Jesus is God and if you were failed to convince, be convinced by that, he calls him our God and Savior. And we're so used to calling Jesus our Savior that we miss the significance of that. But in the Old Testament, the person who's called Savior the most often is actually God himself. So for example, just one example out of dozens, Isaiah 45, 21 says this, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a savior. uh, There is none other besides me. And if that fails to convince you, look at all the different times he's called Lord in this passage. And of course, the, the Greek word Lord is often used to, uh, to translate the word Yahweh in the Old Testament. And Peter calls Jesus Lord in verse 2. And he calls him that again down in, down in verse 8. And he calls him that again in verse 11. And he calls him that again in verse 14. He is God. He is Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the God who saves. He has, in the words of verse 3, access to the divine power. All of the power of God is wielded by the Son of God. He has access to the divine power, and look what he does with that divine power. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So the the power of God in the hands of the Son of God goes to work to orient us so that we might know God himself and worship the one true God, which includes Christ. And if that wasn't convincing to you, look at verse 4. It says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers, we'll talk about that in a second, of the divine nature. That he said to have divine power and divine nature. Now here's why all this is important. Because this son of God, this powerful savior, wants you to know him. He wants you to know him. In verse two, it says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. He wants you to know him. This is why knowledge is referred to here four or five times. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. He says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. This God, this son of God who who reigns, this, this God, he wants you to know him. 
He wants you to know who He is. He wants you to know His saving power. This God wants you, and as we'll see, He wants you to be assured of your salvation. He wants you to be confident in your calling and election. He wants you to know him and to be confident and to rest in his hands. It says in verse 11, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If, if Jesus Christ is said to have a kingdom, that makes him a what? A king. And the king of, kingdom of Christ is a place where we can rest. It's a place where we can lie down. It's a place where our king watches over us and protects us. It's a place where our king reigns and rules for our good and his glory. This is who Jesus Christ is in this passage. We'll say, well, what is, what is salvation in this passage? What is salvation in this passage? If you look in verse 4, you can see this phrase, and I said we'd talk about it in a second, that is... I could preach for a whole year on this one phrase, but the sermon's already going to be long. So so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. That salvation in this passage is a matter not just of receiving something from God, not just a matter of being forgiven of my sins and I can go do now whatever I want, Salvation in this passage is described as this intimate union with the divine nature, of union with Christ. Of course, this union that we have with Christ, this this participation that we have in Him, doesn't mean that we disappear, and it doesn't mean that He disappears. We don't dissolve. We're still we, and He's still He, and yet we experience an intimate relationship with Christ, where all that is ours becomes His, and all that is His becomes ours. And look at all the blessings of union with Christ in this passage. Let me highlight seven, seven blessings of union with Christ in this passage. Seven blessings that we have because we are partakers of the divine nature, because we are those who are united to the Son. Seven things that the Father has given us in Jesus Christ. Number one, He gives all of us a righteousness of equal standing. In verse 1, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior. What he is not saying is that all faith is equally strong. There are some dear saints whose faith is much stronger than mine. There are some dear saints who who the Lord has blessed with a trust and a confidence in the Lord that is not prone to the the anxieties and, and the sins. And there are some people who are farther along in their faith than I am. And he's not saying that we shouldn't grow in our faith as we'll see in a second. He actually thinks that we should grow in our faith but rather that all faith in Christ receives the same righteousness. The stronger you are as a Christian doesn't make you more righteous than others in terms of the righteousness that we receive from Christ. See, the righteousness that we have from Christ is what Paul says that we should be found in him and declared righteous. Just as Abraham believed in God or had faith in God and it was counted to him as righteous, so you and I, when we believe in God, when we have faith in God, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we receive him, when we become partakers of the divine nature, we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That the the righteousness of Jesus Christ is declared or imputed over us. And we are righteous because he is righteous. The theological word for this is sometimes said to be justification. 
That's all that justification means is that we are found in Christ and God declares us righteous because the Son is righteous. And He's taken our condemnation from us. He's, he's buried our sins in the sea. That we are, partake, we are righteous in Christ. We also see in verse 9, we also see in verse 9 that we are cleansed from our former sins. That shame is washed away. We are purified. That we are clean. It's not only that we are forgiven, but that in this, can you understand this? That because you are a partaker in God, uh, in the divine nature through Christ, before you, because you're united to Christ, when God looks at you, he looks at somebody who is clean. He looks at you as clean. Many of you know that I have a toddler, and he is reaching the age where his diapers are something else. And you walk into his room, and it just assaults all of your senses. And oftentimes we feel like that before God. We walk into God's presence. We think that thought that I had, or that thing that I did in my past, or that thing that I said to my wife, or that way that I responded to work, that just, it assaults me. How can it not assault God? And yet, when Scripture says that we are united to Christ, when we become a partaker of the divine nature, when we are, when we are in Christ and found in Him, when we're crucified with Him and risen again with Him, we are purified from that. We're purified from our former sins. It says in verse 4 that, our call, that we are called. That we are called. It says that again. In, uh, it says that in verse 4. Or verse 3, I'm sorry, it says, who called us to his own glory and excellence. And it says that again in verse 10, that we are called. That not only are we forgiven, not only are we declared to be righteous, not only are we purified, but God calls us. And this is a, a call that is effectual, a call that actually works, a call that itself gives rise to the result of that call, a call that affects obedience in our hearts, it's a call that, that beckons us to believe, that haunts us until we find our rest in Christ. We're called. It says that we are elected in verse 10. That he has chosen us from before the foundation of the world. That that in Christ, that he, he, he has chosen to give us all the blessings, all the blessings that he's given to his son. As Jesus himself says in John 15, for you did not choose me, but I chose you. We're, we're elected in Christ. On the one hand, this salvation is said to be an escape. And verse 4 says, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So for those who are in Christ, much like Noah went into the ark, so you and I go into Christ and we escape from this world with all of its folly, with all of its corruption, with all of its destruction. We escape. And yet this is also said to be an entrance. In verse 11, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That we're given an entrance into the kingdom of Christ and therefore... This is the seventh benefit. We persevere. We persevere. Did you notice that? It says, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Because, why? Because of these qualities? No, because these qualities define, uh, are, are a sign of what true faith is. So if you have these qualities, therefore you'll have true faith, and therefore you will persevere. 
that perseverance or eternal security are wrapped up in our union with Christ, that because we're in Him and He is in us, because we share in Him, we're knit into Him, we're crucified and risen with Him, we will persevere. Why? Because He persevered. As Philippians says, for I'm certain of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of my Lord Jesus Christ. That we are in Him. Say, well, what does, how, how do I get this salvation? This sounds like a pretty good deal. Do I have to be good enough? Does God want me to, to, uh, to purchase it? Can I, can I bribe God into it? Maybe if I'm just extra obedient. Maybe if I just go to church a hundred times next year. Maybe if I say something or do something. What, what, what do I have to do? How can I have this salvation? How can I become a participant in Christ? Only through faith. Only through faith. Only by receiving and trusting and resting in Him. It says that very clearly in verse 1. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. If you want to be seen before God as Christ is seen before God, the only thing that you can bring to him is nothing. Is to come before him and say, God, I have, I have nothing. I have no right to, to be called a son by you. I have, I have, there's nothing that I can do to twist your arm into forgiving me, but I plead with you based on your mercy. And Hebrews says that he is able to make perfect all who draw near through him. How do you receive this? You receive it by faith. And this faith is not merely, not merely an intellectual assent. It's not merely, I, yeah, I think that's true. It's a resting in him, which is why it's described as knowledge, the knowledge of a God and of Jesus our Lord. It's called the, the knowledge of, uh, of him who called us. It's not, a, it's not filling our head with facts. It's, it's rather knowing Him in our bones. It's an intimate knowledge of the Lord. And this, this knowledge, as we'll see, leads to a life of holiness, a life of progressive growth. This faith will produce fruit. This faith will lead to holiness in our life. It will. If it's true faith, it will. Because what God has called us to what God has saved us for, what God has forgiven us and put us in Christ and chosen us and elected us is so that we could be worshipers of Him. That's what you were made for. It says that very clearly in verse 3, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Remember, we talked about that phrase means that He is the only God. And so God has so saved you and so designed you and so worked so that you would find all of your joy and satisfaction, that you would find your rest in worshiping Him. That your salvation would lead to your sanctification, which would lead to your satisfaction. That God has saved you for Himself. God doesn't just save us and set us free in the desert. Rather, God saves us and brings us to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, in which the, with the rich bounty of his name and his character. And we walk with him even through the valley of the shadow of death. 
That's what salvation is in this passage. And if you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus and this, this salvation sounds so foreign and weird to you, you could not be in a better place. Because anybody who's a member here at this church knows the gospel and would be more than happy to share that with any of you right after the service. And even if you understand this and you think, I I lack this, I can't wait till the end of the service. Well, put your faith in Jesus now. Don't wait. I told you it's going to be a long sermon. Don't wait for the end of the sermon. Put your faith, rest in him now. That's what salvation is. And of course, this salvation leads to sanctification, which brings us to our third question. How does sanctification work? How does sanctification work We don't have all of the the pieces of the puzzle in this passage, but we have many of them. We we know that this is what God has saved us for, that that we would be saved to worship his glory and excellence that by means of his precious and very great promises, we we, we would push on to holiness, which is why he says this in verse 5, for this reason, make every effort, work hard, labor, toil, push hard to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection. That word brotherly affection is just the Greek word Philadelphia. It is nothing like the city of Philadelphia. And brotherly affection with love. So push hard, strive hard, work hard so that you might add to your faith, so that your faith might grow and produce fruit, so your salvation will result in sanctification. Work hard and and labor. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, verse 8, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if you're growing in these qualities, if you're working hard, if you're laboring in them, then you will be effective and fruitful in the knowledge of your Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, that by growing in sanctification, we can more and more be satisfied in Christ better. That the knowledge that we have of Christ will produce fruit and it will be effective to help us see Christ better. So how do, you, how do you pursue holiness? Will you look to Christ? How do you look to Christ? Will you pursue holiness? It's two pedals of a bike. The, the more that we work hard and labor to grow as a Christian, the better we'll be able to be satisfied in Christ. And the better that we're able to be satisfied in Christ, the more that we will grow in holiness. Do you understand that this is, this is where he points us, is that you ought to grow as a Christian. You ought to make effort and work hard and labor and toil and, and put all of your effort into trying to grow as a Christian. Now, maybe you're here and you say, I, Matt, I have been doing that. I've worked so hard and my soul is such rocky soil. And I'm trying to be more self-controlled, and it just seems like I'm not getting there. And I'm trying to grow in brotherly affection, but I just get annoyed so easily. And I'm trying to grow in my faith, and I'm, I'm, I'm working hard, and it just it seems like everything is getting short-circuited. It seems like I'm not making any progress. It seems like it, no matter how hard I try, it's two steps forward, three steps back. 
What should I do? Let me point your attention to verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So, how do you grow as a Christian? You keep the knowledge of the gospel in the foreground of your life. We never for a second, for a moment, graduate from the gospel. Many of you, maybe like me, grew up in a church where the fact that Jesus died on the, sin, on the cross was really important. That's how you started your Christian life, but you pretty soon get past that. And many of you, like me, know what it is to be seeking holiness and to be making effort and to not be making any ground. You and I never get over the gospel. The gospel is not only the beginning of the Christian life. It's not only the doors that led us into the kingdom. The gospel is the Christian life. It lines every street and every boulevard. It it ought to loom heavy over our horizon. We should never forget the gospel. Christians, I'm not saying don't make effort. Please make effort. It's what it says very, very clearly in verse 5. And yet that effort can only be made by keeping the faithfulness of Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins. That effort can only be made if it's driven by grace. If this reality of all the promises of God that are found in Jesus and this reality of all the blessings of Christ that are found in union with Christ, that can only be in the forefront of our imagination. It has to be the carrot that is hanging over our head as we are pushing forward into holiness. Do you understand that the only way that you and I can grow is if we never let ourselves get blind that we would forget the beauty of the gospel? That we would never let ourselves lose sight of all that Christ has done for us, but rather that we might, as we're reading through the Old Testament and as we're looking at all the commandments in Scripture, that we might keep all that Christ has done for us on the cross and in the resurrection before our imagination and before our eyes, that that would be our guiding lamp, our our touchstone. That as we look through the Old Testament, we would find in it pointers forward to Christ. And that we would grow in the knowledge of how all of Scripture emanates from this one moment on Golgotha. Christians, we must never lose sight of the gospel. Not only because it's the only way which we can be saved, but also because it's the only way that we can be sanctified. It's the only way we can grow in practical holiness. It's the only way that we can truly mortify our sins and live with Christ. And yet that, all of that is gloriously true. And that's why Peter goes ahead and says, by the way, I'm reminding you of this. I know you already know it, but I'm reminding you of it. And I'm reminding you of it. And I'm re- do you notice how many times he uses the words like remind in verses 12 through 15? Therefore, I always intend to remind you of these qualities 
I think it right to stir you up by way of reminder. And I make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter says, I'm going to say this so much that I want it to be stuck in your head that you can't stop thinking about it. We need to be reminded we are so quick to forget the truths of the gospel and fall into despair and fall into drudgery and stagnation. Yet all of this is gloriously true. And yet this is not the highest point, the main thing towards which I believe this passage is driving. This is still part of the climbing elevation. And the peak is in verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Have you ever thought about how out of place that sounds? He says, here's who Christ is. Here's what salvation is. Here's how sanctification works. Oh yeah, and by the way, don't forget to confirm your calling and election. It seems out of place. It it seems disjointed. It seems uneven. I mean, if if it was just to end at verse 9 and then go off into another topic and tangent, that would make a lot of sense. But Peter says all of this, all of this is building up to what I want you to understand to be diligent to confirm or to have assurance, to be confident of your calling and election. All of this is driving us that you and I might be assured of our salvation. So what does assurance have to do with these things that came before? And what is assurance anyways? Assurance of salvation is where we go from knowing about the truths of the gospel in the abstract to knowing that they are applied to us. So if I could put it this way, assurance is the difference between saying, on the one hand, God justifies sinners. So Romans 5, I think, 8, glorious truth. If you want a verse to memorize, that's the one. God justifies sinners. But it's another thing to know God justifies me, a sinner. That God not only justifies sinners in the abstract, but he justifies me. That he declares me to be righteous and he gives me his righteousness. And that even though my sins were as scarlet, they have been washed white as snow. So how do you do that? How do you get assurance? How do you confirm your calling and election? How, how, how do you grow in your confidence of the gospel? How do you do that? Well, the primary ground of assurance, primary ground of assurance, and by the way, I'm going to leave you hanging here for just one second. Two great resources on the topic is, um, is Joel Beakey's Knowing and Growing in Assurance, and the second one is Greg Gilbert's book, Assur- uh, Assured. It's on that bookshelf. Uh, if you, any of you want the Beakey book, send me an email, shoot me a text, be happy to get that for you. I'm going to warn you, the Beakey book is harder but it's better. Okay. How do you grow in assurance? What what is the basis for our assurance? What's the promises of God? The promises of God. That the ultimate primary ground for our assurance is what he says 
are the precious and very great promises. It's the precious and very great promises. It's, it's the truths that we've talked about so far, that we are united to Christ, that, that we've been given His righteousness. The, the truths of, 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 of the gospel are the, are the ultimate, and I, I would say in a way, the only real ground of assurance. That the way that you confirm your election and your calling the, the, is that you understand and you ground yourself in these truths. That you internalize them and you know them like the back of your hand. The ground for assurance, the ultimate ground for assurance, must be in the fact that Jesus dies for sinners. I, I Maybe some of you have had experiences like I've had, like, what we might call a mountaintop experience where you just, maybe as you were at a camp or conference or maybe there was a sermon or a worship service or something that just you felt like God was speaking to you. And I don't intend to rob you of that experience even for a second. But you are not saved because of that experience. You are saved because of his precious and very great promises in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are saved because God does not renege on his word. Because God does not take those promises back. That's the primary, the ultimate ground for our assurance. And yet, a useful secondary ground and a confirming ground of our assurance is the fruit that we see in our own lives. Is the fruit that we see in our own lives. You shouldn't have assurance that you're saved because of how good you are, don't get me wrong but rather the presence of fruit with faith indicates that faith is real. Let me say that again. The presence of fruit with faith indicates that faith is real. Here's the analogy, um, and I think this is true. I might be just making this up. If you are walking by a house and you smell sulfur, you know there's what? A gas leak. Let me say it louder just in case. This is useful information for some of you later. If you're walking by a house and you smell sulfur, there's a gas leak, and you should leave. If you're wondering, do I sit and stay? I should, no, 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 you should leave. The presence of sulfur, of that sulfur smell, is actually not poisonous to you. It's actually harmless. It's an additive that is put into natural gas because actual natural gas is odorless. And so if you, if you smell, you can't actually smell natural gas. So what they do is they put the sulfur smell in there. It's something that's strong so that when you smell that, you know the real stuff is there too. In the same way, for some of us, maybe in, in the dark cloud, uh, the dark clouds are hanging over us or we're doubting or we're, we are not sure. and We just can't, we, we, we know God's promises, but we just, it just seems like they're, they're out there and they're not in here and we, we're having a hard time connect those dots. When we can look at that and say, yes, but I know that I have grown. I know that I have more self-control than I did before. I know that I have more knowledge than I, I know that I'm more steadfast than I was before. I know that I have more virtue than I did before. I know that I have more brotherly affection and more love than I did before. I know that I'm not perfect, and, and yet those things would not be true of me if my faith wasn't real. It's not those things which save you, but those things indicate to you that your faith is real. And even, even when you have sinned and 
so many of us, sometimes maybe we think, I just, I did this thing, or I was living in this lifestyle for a while, it was unrepentant, and I just, I feel so, I feel dirty. Would God really want me? You're not looking for the presence of sin in your life, because that is not hard to find. You're looking for the presence of fruit, because that indicates that God is growing you, and he's working in you, and he hasn't forgotten about you. And that he is working in you that your faith would flower and produce confidence and assurance. Christian, you should make every effort and seek after and work for and fight for assurance. And how you do that when the, when the promises of God, you know them to be true and they, they just feel and they just seem abstract and out there as you look at the ways that God has grown you in very concrete ways, and you take confidence that if that is true, then so are the promises of God. You should fight and seek after that. Now, here's why this is important. This is, the, this is part of why Peter is making this whole argument. Because there are, and he'll go into this in chapter 2, there are people in the church... In, in the church of all ages, I'm not talking about anybody specific, there are people in the church that will promise freedom that leads to slavery. That's what it says in verse 19. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. And, and that promise of freedom is the exact opposite of the way to true assurance. That promise of freedom is to say, well, we're going to just call you a carnal Christian. You can go do whatever you want. When you're ready to really become a Christian, let me know. There are people, that, that, that's true in the church of every age. It says that very clearly in the next chapter. And, and what it does is it promises you that, yes, there's freedom here, without telling you that it will... That, such an unbridled and unchecked seeking after sin will only lead to slavery. But the biblical route for assurance is this. Add to your faith knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and virtue. Work hard. Seek after those things. Work to produce fruit. And take assurance that if you're producing fruit, your faith is genuine. The two different accounts could not be more opposite. One promises freedom that leads to slavery. The other promises freedom that leads to freedom. Christian, you should work after and seek after and push for true, genuine assurance. The kind of assurance that is grounded in the promises of God that lead to fruit in the life of the Christian. So as, as we turn to apply this, let me give you eight applications. Eight applications. Number one, God wants you to have true assurance. God wants you to have true assurance. God's de design and desire for you is not that you would live in a state of anxiety over the fate of your soul forever. But God wants you to be able to rest in his promises. 
He wants you to take confidence in all that he's done for you. He wants you to rest in his arms as any father wants a child to rest in their arms. He doesn't want you to sit on the edge of the room and doubt whether or not he's really your father. He wants you to have assurance. He wants you to have true assurance. He wants you to be able to rest in his arms. And that true assurance begins with faith, number two. That true assurance begins with faith. Without faith, the letter of the Hebrews tells us, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Unless your faith is put in Christ, unless you've grabbed him and received him and taken hold of him and you're resting upon him, then you cannot have assurance. Assurance begins with faith. Trust in the Lord if you haven't done that. Don't wait for the end of this sermon. I still got six more points to go. Assurance begins with faith. Number three, you ought, we all ought to be fruit inspectors, not of each other's lives, but we all ought to inspect our own fruit. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 tells us that everyone should examine themselves to see whether or not they're in the faith. If you are a Christian, that can only lead to greater assurance for you. And if you're not, that might just avert you from disaster. You know how you go to the grocery store and you feel those cantaloupe and you, you, you feel for the, the mushy spots and the gross spots, which is why I'm not allowed to go grocery shopping because I skipped that step. <laughs> you and I ought to go and we ought to hold that up and see, is the faith that we have genuine? Is the faith that we have genuine? Is it producing fruit? Is my fruit true? And I would say this, number four, make effort, concrete effort to grow in concrete ways. If you're looking for a way to do that, somebody wrote an article for the back of your bulletin. I would also say it's valuable, it's valuable to take this list of qualities, this list of virtues, faith, virtue, self-control, knowledge, self, uh, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. To take that list and, and spend some time with the Lord and examine your heart and say, which one of these do I need to grow in? How can I grow in this? God, would you help me to grow in this way this summer? Would you help me to grow in this way in the season of my life? Make concrete effort to grow in concrete ways. This is too important to leave in the abstract. Make concrete effort to grow in concrete ways. And number five, number five, remind yourself of the promises of God. Remind yourself of the promises of God. Now, what I mean by that is you should talk to yourself. Now, I know some of you already do that. Actually, all of you already do that. Just some of us do it out loud. And I'm giving you permission. I mean, you already do it. There's nobody who talks to you more than yourself. And nobody tells you things more than yourself. And I'm just telling you to do it well. Talk to yourself. Tell yourself of the promises of God. Memorize the promises of God. Rehearse them. Memorize scripture and rehearse it back to yourself as you're walking to your car, you're walking into the office, or you're walking to the job site, or you're walking to the classroom. Remind yourself of the promises of God. Talk to yourself. Tell yourself about them. 
because the promises of God are the only ways that you're going to actually grow in concrete ways. That's only if you remember those things do you have a shot at actually growing. Remind yourself of the promises of God. Number six, find assurance in them. Find assurance in them. Find your assurance. Seek after true assurance. Work hard that you might have assurance in the promises of God. And when that just is not enough for you, thank the Lord that he has been so kind to precipitate our, our, our doubts and our faultings and our failures and look to the ways that he's working in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So find your assurance in the promises of God, and when you need to, find your assurance in the ways that he's growing you and working in you. Number seven, in order to look forward, so in order to persevere, in order to press on towards the goal, look back, look back to the promises of God, look back to what he's done on the cross, and look around to what he's doing in your life. So before you look for, before you try to persevere, before you push into the future, look back to how he has saved you through the gospel and look at the ways that's producing holiness in your life and you're growing as a Christian and then press on. By looking back and looking around, we can truly look forward. And finally, number eight, I've already told you to talk to yourself, so now let me say this, talk to others. Talk to others. Hebrews 10.25 says to not neglect the gathering of the saints. Why? So that you may be all the more encouraged as the day draws near. Talk to others. I would question if you don't do this last one, if you truly understand the rest of the sermon. How could you be filled with the promises of God and not tell others about it? How could you not encourage a brother who's, uh, who's struggling? How could you not lift up those who are downcast? How could you not pour the light of God's truth on the word? How, how could you not do those things? How, how, how is it that you could talk to yourself and not talk to others about these things? Christians, God has given us each other. And you'll notice the letter here starts out saying, Brothers. God's given us the fellowship of the saints so that we could tell each other about the glorious promises of God. And one of the ways that we do that is by singing. I love this last song that we sing, and I know it's not in our regular rep- repertoire, but it is today. Blessed assurance. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have been so good and kind to save us, to give us your precious and very great promises. Would you plant them deep into our soul so that we might know that we are yours? thank you that you want us to have this kind of confidence, this kind of assurance, this kind of trust in your promises. We pray that this word would not return void. Amen.